Welcome, everybody, to Campus Preacher Live, and I want to read Genesis 1-1 to you as we get going. just simply says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the thing I want to talk about today, and hopefully uh, something you probably talk about regularly, is the idea of discrimination. And what made me think about it was... Uh, However, they do their little algorithms and they are able to trigger you. Uh, Facebook keeps giving me news stories that kind of drive me nuts. And one of them that they put across my desk the other day was by The Nation. Um, now, The Nation is basically a left-wing magazine. And uh, one of the things that was interesting to me, so it about, it's about a 160-year-old magazine. And prior to kind of becoming this left-wing standard magazine, because I think they said it's the oldest running um, left-wing magazine in the country, maybe the most continuous running magazine, but it was an abolitionist magazine prior to um, taking on its current form. And one of the things that was interesting with that, if you think of this magazine being 160 years old and its ability to maintain a progressive outlook or a left-wing outlook um, over all these years, and you think of all the right-wing magazines or newspapers, whatever it is, that have gradually uh, drifted leftward, this one has actually stayed pretty far left-wing. And they sent an article uh, to me. It says, and uh, the, the Supreme Court ruling this past week says, how the Supreme Court learned to stop worrying and love religious bigotry. And so one of the things that, you know, when I'm preaching on campus and something that you probably come across quite often is the idea that we are racist, that we're sexist, that we're anti-gay, and that we as Christians discriminate, but that the secular man believes in equality and therefore he does not discriminate. So what I want to look at is this basic idea that uh, discrimination is an inescapable concept for any structure or any religious outlook. And the, the first place I got thinking about this was actually reading an article by R.J. Rushduni. And if you've ever heard me talk, I've probably mentioned this before, because R.J. Rushduni is one of the men that has probably, if you were to break down all my thinking, his fingerprints are all over it. But one of the key areas that he actually has influenced me the most is that the opening paragraph of an article that he wrote called The Society of Satan. And this is from uh, Biblical Economics Today, October 1979. So it's basically, what does that put us at? 40, 40 years ago, 42 years ago. And he says this in the opening. He says, man is inescapably religious. Uh, man is inescapably religious. He may deny God, but all the categories of his life remain religious. And all are categories borrowed from the triune God. Since the only world man lives in is the world God created, his thinking, even in apostasy, is inevitably conditioned and governed by a God-given framework. Men cannot escape that framework. They may deny God's sovereignty, but they cannot uh, stop believing in sovereignty. They merely transfer it to man or to the state. Total law and planning, i.e. predestination, is inescapable. Denied to God, it is simply transferred to the scientific socialist socialist state, which predestinates or totally governs and plans all things. If deity be denied to the God of Scripture, it merely reappears in man or the state. And if the church ceases proclaiming the gospel, then religion does not perish. It reappears as politics or economics, and salvation continues to be offered to inescapably religious man. And that's one of the aspects that we're really seeing in our current culture is the transformation. Like, so America kind of wanted to be secular, and we had that brief insurgence of the new atheists, you know, the, the Richard Dawkins, the Sam Harris's of the world for, for a brief season. Even if you are on Twitter and you kind of follow a lot of the critical race stuff, James Lindsay and these guys, they started off with this 
you know, new atheism. They're having these meetings. They're having um, the, these conferences, and they thought there were this like growing movement of of uh, you know atheism and agnosticism, largely atheism. And then what James Lindsay's testimony is it basically got uh, taken over by identity politics and was destroyed from within. And now James Lindsay is looking at the American Church and the Southern Baptist Convention and these sorts of things, and saying that this new religion is basically creeping in. So it's at least fascinating that an atheist looking at uh, the church is saying, look, you guys are going to get destroyed within because of critical race theory and these sorts of things. And so the, the, the point is this, that, that the rise of this alternative religion in our culture that really was almost like a re- revival last summer. If you remember, there was uh, white people washing black people's feet, and which as a Christians in and of itself, this stuff is, is not bothersome. It's not, it's not like, oh no, that's wrong in and of itself, but it's in and of itself in the broader context of a revival away from the true gospel and into an alternative gospel. And so men and women are inescapably religious. The only question is, what religion are they yoking themselves to? You can't live in that atheistic or agnostic vacuum. Men and women are going to go somewhere. And so the reason I want to talk about the inescapability of discrimination is because as Christians, as our worldview basically recedes from the culture um, and secular man becomes more self-consciously secular and it's largely going to reveal itself in monism and by monism i just basically a radical egalitarianism that all is one we're all and and the key to all things that humanity needs to be one there is no male or female there is no white or black kind of that galatians idea in christ there's neither male nor female uh, slave or free uh, jew or greek and secular man is going to take that over and, and they want to mesh us and so i think even much of the transgender stuff amidst all the practical chaos of an individual's life, is rooted in a philosophy of monism, and that what we need to do is make everything one. And any distinction, male, female, rich, poor, white, black, whatever it is, any distinction is actually um, unjust, and it's immoral. And that's where the idea of discrimination comes in. And so I'm going to read two definitions uh, for you about discrimination, and uh, we're going to kind of, you have Definition one, definition two. And so the the second one, I think we can all universally agree. It says this, recognition and understanding of the difference between one thing and another. That's discrimination. Adam and Eve stand there in the Garden of Eden, tree of life, uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're able to make those distinctions. You also end up making a distinction, obviously, between uh, Adam and Eve. At the, the reason I wanted to read Genesis 1 at the beginning was you have the creator, then you have the creation. So fundamental to Christian thought, and really all thought, is this idea of discrimination. You have to make distinctions. And this basic idea of logic, A and non-A, is just an inescapable part of man. So when, as we're going to get into this article here in a minute, what they're going to end up looking at is this idea that religious discrimination is bad, secular discrimination is good, as far as discerning what is good and what is evil. Now, the, the way that our culture uses it is in the first sense, and this is where you, in a discussion with somebody, you end up getting on the defensive because they're going to accuse you of discrimination. And what they mean by that is not merely that you're making distinctions between two things, uh, but it's rather this. It says, the unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories of people or things, especially on the grounds of race, age, or sex. And so if you think of our broader culture and Christian or non-Christian, the average person thinks it's wrong to discriminate based upon race. Uh, the average person out here today is going to think, yeah, you, you do not discriminate when you're hiring somebody for a job because they're black or because they're Asian or because they're maybe because they're white now because of the privilege that white man has had supposedly. You can maybe uh, discriminate there. So in that sense, almost universally, most people are willing to accept the idea that you will not discriminate based upon 
race in of itself. But the next question becomes age. At that point, I would say the average person is willing to discriminate between a five-year-old, 50-year-old, 80-year-old, 20-year-old. We And even our consent laws are predicated on the idea of making distinctions between a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old. And we can argue that that line at 18 is arbitrary, whatever it is. But the reality of it is we discriminate at that point of age. And we make those discriminations all the time, whether you can vote, whether you can drive, whether you can drink, whether you can go to war. All sorts of distinctions and discriminations are predicated upon age. So that doesn't have that much emotional force in our culture when we say ageism or whatever it is. People are like, Psh, whatever. Um, so, so like, you know, if a 20-year-old's not willing to date an 80-year-old man, no one thinks, oh, that's ageism. Uh, but if a 20-year-old white woman is unwilling to date a 20-year-old black man, people might say, ah, discrimination. So, so the question starts to work itself in pretty quickly whether something is just or prejudicial and exactly how you determine what is being just. And then the final one is sex. And that'd be one of the places where we are collapsing as a culture. Now we don't want to discriminate based upon sex and this whole month during LGBT pride month and the level of just absolute push of the transgender ism uh, is just absolutely insane to me. But uh, the reality of it is what our culture is saying. And this is consistency. It's consistent monism. It's consistent anti-discrimination um, in a broad, abstract, philosophical sense. If we say we don't want to discriminate, we want everybody to be one, we have to eradicate all distinctions. And that's what they're seeking to do, whether they can do it or not. Uh, we want to argue no, um, but that's that's what they're driving at. So when you hear the term discrimination, what you want to do in that discussion, at the very least, is push back a little bit on how are you using the term discrimination. And then once they begin to work in the term just or unjust, then you kind of have to lean into that component of, is this an actually a just discrimination or unjust discrimination? So you take, um, in our culture, something like sex, where we still have an age of consent. The average person does not think it's wrong that we dis we discriminate in society a guy who's 30 chasing a 13-year-old girl or someone prepubescent. We don't think that's wrong in our society. So we do want to discriminate at that point. And so so the question's never uh, just – or it's, it's never are you going to discriminate. The question's always – on what grounds are you discriminated? And then from there, is it just or is it unjust? And as Christians, we want to operate in the context of biblical Christianity and what the scriptures teach. And I would say that strands of racial discrimination are clearly biblically wrong. The, going all the way back to Abraham, the promise has been for you and the nations. It's not a nationalistic thing. When we often think of nationalism, we think of this, um, it can quickly degenerate into you know, Nazi Germany. Like we're a purebred, everybody else is the dirty people. Uh, whereas a biblical nationalism would recognize uh, Greek, Egyptian, uh, Jewish, and whatever it may be, and that they have their own customs, they have their own ways of life, but they have a fundamental access to God through the gospel. And the promise to Abraham has always been to bless the nation. So as Christians, we would want to argue that discrimination based upon race in the sense of uh, the offer of the gospel, uh, whites, blacks, Asians, whatever it is, bearing the image of God, we'd want to maintain, no, they all bear the image of God. And any Christian view that wants to put one race over the other in the sense of having more of an, bearing more image or being able to rule in a, uh, like, strict sense. It's, it's kind of funny. I've, I've been, I almost read too much where you feel like you need to qualify everything because you realize what people are arguing. Uh, but in basic terms, we'll just say that as Christians, we would say that racial discrimination uh, is fundamentally errant. <clears throat> but where we're going to get in trouble culturally is, but we are willing to discriminate based upon male and female. We don't allow female pastors, uh, female elders, depending on your church. There, there may be a biblical argument for female deacons. I realize some churches do. I would say maybe in our current climate, we don't want female deacons just because we're absolutely collapsing the male-female distinction. And so I think we're wise as a church to keep that distinction 
uh, alive and well. Um, and, and so th- these basic ideas play into this article that I read. And the reason I wanted to talk about this article, because I feel like these people at the nation, and for some reason I thought they were communists. Uh, they may not actually be communists. I'm not, I'm not sure if they all are, if they're just kind of your basic left-wing progressive. Um, but they seem to get many of the issues better and they understand um, a concept, that, like one of the most helpful concepts I came across years ago was hegemony. And, and if you are into presuppositional apologetics, here's where hegemony comes in. If you are into presuppositional apologetics, you have often argued, oh, you don't understand your own presuppositions. And you're arguing with somebody, and what you're seeking to do is uproot their presuppositions. Now, what critical theory has done, and, and I think they've been successful at, and where, where they're actually pretty good at, is what they're seeking to do is undermine the assumptions of the Enlightenment. Uh, so, so when critical theory about 100 years ago uh, started to give birth into Frankfurt, um, it wasn't this thing that just kind of out of the blue happened. Their, their first target, it wasn't primarily religious. It was fundamentally the Enlightenment of the Western project. And so that was a thing that they were seeking to go after. And so in seeking to go after it, um, th- th- what they had to do was go after the West concept of freedom, the West concept of man. They had to go after the West concept of science and all these sorts of things and saying, look, you have all these presuppositions back here that you haven't really thought through. And that's why in many debates, uh, I think the critical theorists show up and the conservatives are unarmed because they are operating with this backdrop of this hegemony, this this enlightenment, this kind of constitutional, just kind of these assumptions. And they're not used to having their assumptions challenged. And so even today, when male-female debates come up, many people have not thought through the issue of what is a male, what is a female. We've just kind of accepted the cultural norms of this is a male, this is a female, and someone comes along and says, by what standard? And people are scrambling to try to make sense of it. And we can mock or whatever, uh, but philosophically, we have to give an answer for here's why there's male, here's why they're female, here's what it means to be a man, here's what it means to be a woman. Anyway, the people at the nation get this concept of hegemony better because it's kind of a, it's not a left-wing concept, but the, the left, going back to Antonio Gramsci, seem to grasp this better than just about anybody else. And so they go into a culture and they're seeking to dig up uh, uh, the roots of the system because once you get down into the roots and you change that, what's going to grow out of it is going to be radically different. And so the left over the last 70 years, at least, have been sowing, <laughs> have been sowing these seeds that are now bearing fruit and the average Christian does not know how to deal with them. The average conservative doesn't know how to deal with them because they're, they're, they have not realized that the roots are fundamentally different and that these different seeds have been planted and what's springing out of our children, what's springing out of our schools is radically different. So here's what it says in this Nation article. Um, It says, um, conservatives would have us believe there is an unresolved conflict in our laws between two legitimate but competing interests. On one side are the overwhelming majority of Americans who think discrimination and bigotry uh, should not be supported by the secular government. And the average person, if you were to hear, you know, should the secular government, should the federal government discriminate, the average person would say no. Um, it, just the emotional force of that question, should we discriminate? You, you use a term like discriminate, you're immediately like, oh, well, who wants to be a bigot? Who wants to be hateful? Um, and so they're, they're framing it well, uh, be supported by the secular government. On the other side are the vocal minority of Americans, which is going to be us, uh, who believe that state-sponsored discrimination and bigotry is required by God. Conservatives are pretty sure discrimination and bigotry should win the day always, but they're deeply divided about how to get there legally. And that becomes the debate is this legal thing. So part of what this article is writing about is a thing, uh, a Supreme Court case called Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. And what happened in very 
simplistic terms is you have uh, Catholic social services that were no longer willing to put foster children with homosexual couples or gay couples, whatever you want to call them. Um, they were not willing to screen those individuals on whether or not they should get a foster child. And the Philadelphia cut off their contract with Catholic social services. So Catholic social services comes to the city of Philadelphia, say, hey, yeah, we're willing to provide the service. We're willing to provide uh, provide homes for these kids. But what we're not going to do is place them in homosexual homes. And then the city of Philadelphia cuts off that contract. Uh, Catholic Social Services brings it to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court sides with Catholic Social Services, saying that, interestingly enough, that the city of Philadelphia cannot discriminate against uh, Catholic Social Services' religious beliefs. And so the reality of it is you're going to have discrimination, Either the city of Philadelphia is going to succeed in discriminating against religious people and their religious outlook. And eventually, there's no doubt that they will be pushing towards the idea that Christians ought not to foster just because of the way they're raising their children. So, so it's, it, it starts off right now in a, in a realm that we can kind of, at least culturally, there's, a, there's a, a point where many people have come around the homosexual issue where they think it's normal, they think it's fine. Um, but eventually, what it's going to end up meaning is that the Christians will not be able to uh, foster children. So what you have is the city of Philadelphia discriminate saying Catholic social services bad in the way that they want to put children in foster homes. And these groups over here who are willing to put homosexuals in there are good. And so this whole article being framed in the context of discrimination is largely misreading because it, it's only a question of whose discrimination. And that's one of the things they, they actually get at at several points. And they understand well in this article that the backdrop of, of America by and large has been religious and has been Christian. And that this religious and this Christian backdrop to America has kind of, um, allowed the Supreme Court and allowed certain ideas, basically uh, this hegemonic background that, yeah, homosexuality was wrong for a long time in the West. Why was that? Uh, they'd want to say it's largely because of these religious background, this religious background. But as these religious idea kind of gets uprooted and overturned and everything becomes secular and that becomes more consistent, and that's, a, that's where we're at right now is this place of transition, that the reality of it is that the secular government, as they become more... Um, consistent with their secular principles are going to begin to push out Christianity out of every nook and cranny. And so as, if you were to read an article like this, or if you're an engage in um, some sort of apologetic endeavor, uh, what you end up having is this reality that at some point you're going to have to discuss discrimination. So how would you want to go about pushing back in this uh, discussion? And, and so what, what I've often found helpful, because there's, there's two ways to go about this, I think. You kind of have the presuppositionalist that just wants to go scorched earth, lean full in, just say, by what standard, by what standard, by what standard, by what standard. And you realize, ah, we didn't, you know, they might think you're a jerk. You might think that you shut them up because they couldn't give you a standard. And so you think you won and you kind of walk off accordingly. Um, but how do you sit at a table and try to persuade someone who's sitting there going, you're discriminatory? Now, there is no easy way to do this in and of itself. So it's, it's not like five easy tricks. Um, the reality of it is it's pretty difficult to persuade an individual because I'm realizing more and more people are not governed by reason. Um, pointing out that everybody discriminates, I think is helpful. And we need to do that, that the secular man discriminates against the religious and the religious man uh, discriminates along different grounds. But even, so even maybe one of the things you could point out in this context, do you think that say, um, if there is an incestuous marriage, which you know, on what grounds do we discriminate on that? We might be able to say scientific, but should an incestuous marriage or an incestuous relationship be able to adopt children or foster children? Uh, I would be willing to bet right now that most people would think that can't be a good environment for a child. We need to 
pull them out of there. Um, or you know, this article pulls all the basic plugs as far as you know whether or not you can be loving or whether or not you are loving and the religious want to discriminate against love. Um, and so how do we want to, you know, if you have something like NAMLA, North American Men Boys Love Association, should they be able to foster children or would we want to discriminate against their beliefs and stuff like that? So, so the reality of it is even the secular man, at some point, he's going to look at a family. He's going to look at a racist family. Say the, you know, you have some white supremacist family that wants to take in children. They're going to discriminate against those individuals. And they're going to, and what they want to do is just say, well, it's just. And that's where the real debate ends up hinging. Is secular man able to tease out the implications of his justice consistently or not? And so in half my discussions when I'm on campus, what I'm actually looking to do is um, – if you think of a football field, they want me to start basically at my own one yard line and basically somehow score a touchdown. Whereas my initial move is to try to get the ball to midfield. So how do I, how do I get it to a place like, yes, I agree. And you know, if you've listened to this program, you've listened to cross politics at some point in your life, you said there is no neutrality, which in a sense is absolutely true. But another sense rhetorically, is there a sense in which you can get to midfield and get them to agree at a place that like, yes, we do make distinctions. And once they make distinctions, then you can ask the question is, well, is that a just distinction or an unjust distinction? And ultimately, that's where your debate's going to be. Now, this is a, a little bit of a different illustration. But a few years ago, I was preaching at Colorado State University, and a young black woman was accusing me of being too binary in my thinking. And, and binary thinking is just discriminatory. It separates A and non-A. And so in her head, it was just way too discriminatory. And so she's going on and on against me about my binary thinking. And then, so I just asked her, I was like, so you're telling me I can either think your way or I can think my way. She goes, that's right. And I was like, how is that not binary thinking? And then fortunately, most people there laugh, but she rolls her eyes and goes, oh, you don't get it. Well, maybe I don't get it, um, but rolling your eyes and walking off doesn't demonstrate that I don't get it. It just shows like, yeah, show me how this, this binary thinking is not uh, inescapable. Show me where some sense of discrimination is not inescapable. Now, the question ultimately becomes one of justice. And so how do we put that push back at the point of justice is where we need to go with it. And so the purpose of this is as we look at these sorts of things in uh, the nation, kind of where we're at, what we're doing, um, I think at the end of the day, we, we have to realize that we as Christians are seen as the bigoted, hateful, discriminatory ones. And we have to begin to make a pushback uh, regarding what that is rhetorically. And uh, when we read articles like this, we have to understand, and I think an article like this, actually a left-wing article, is very helpful because it's actually driving, it, it understands the roots of the debate and discussion, and it understands even the history of thought a little bit. It's a little sloppy at points. But for the most part, it understands that you have this Christian backdrop that's now waning, and they're capitalizing on the ability to lean in on that point. So that's this uh Campus Preacher live episode. If you have any questions, comments, demands, uh, yeah, yeah. If you are in the, um, yeah, if you have any questions, uh, gladly uh, field those because I think part of what I'd like to do here is interact with you on anything I've said or anything that's going on, whether you've read this article or something else, and we can kind of go back and forth on. Uh, the nature of how we go about arguing these things. So if you've come across a context uh, where someone said, hey, you're being discriminatory, how would you handle this? Because uh, I think those things would be much more helpful. Um, but if you don't, uh, hopefully next week and the weeks to come, we can uh, begin to develop those ideas a bit more. And so that's this episode of the Campus Preacher Live. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith at campuspreacher.com, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram, Keith Darrell on Facebook, and we'll see you next week live. <laughs>